0: You don't care. You don't, I mean it's it's fine. I mean I barely care and I'm making this thing but it, it's not enough the big showy things. You have to love the little things. The opening night of the wild leading festival of nature. Special guest and threatened species ambassador Nicola Torkey takes the mic. But instead of making large of our sea lions and our albatrosses, she says we should forget about them. She argues anyone can get excited about the big things. doesn't mean you're into nature. That we should start telling stories about the little things. That we should take down the penguins at the airport and stop going on about sea lions. And replace them all with a new city logo. A peripetus. Some glorified bug. Wild. It's wild. Wild.
1: It's really
2: wild. Wow, it's wild. 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 It's so wild.
3: So Nicola was saying, let's ditch the albatross, you know, get rid of the sea lions, no more penguins. She wanted to replace them with this worm-like thing. It's a peripetus. A peripetus. I mean, it's no sea lion. Like, what is this thing? Why should I care? Yeah, yeah, but like, anyone
0: can get excited about a big old sea lion, like, big old mammalian megafauna, you know, celebrity species, but... I mean, if you're really into nature, you should get excited about the little things too.
3: But how can we get excited about the little things? Yes, 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 that's good. That's exactly
0: what this episode's about. Okay, so this episode is all about the small things. I'm Jamie McCauley.
3: And I'm Claire Concanon. So how do we get ourselves excited about the little things? (laughs) I mean, you tell me. Okay, well, l- let's start somewhere. Why don't we start with this Peripetus thing?
0: This is good. So I went along to a public event as part of the Wild Dineen Festival, finding all about that tiny little sluggy, wormy thing, the Peripetus.
4: And has anyone ever seen one? Oh, yes, these guys are lucky because they up to see one. Anyway, look, we're going to meet some later on. I've got some... Here, I've wrangled them up specially, so they're
0: here to meet you. Speaking is Dave Randall. Dave is a local legend who found these things in his garden, found out kind of how awesome they are, and has just been frothing on them ever since, telling people how great they are and fighting on their behalf. I don't
4: study them, I just think it's really cool that we've got them around. I, I just like to advocate for them, I try to inform people about them, and try to get land put aside for them where they can be safe. I make habitats for them and just like to leave them in peace really. So uh, I guess I'm a Peripetus conservationist and homemaker.
0: But first wait, what are Peripetus? Peripetus are a tiny but fearsome carnivore that track our forests, hunting prey by sending forth a super sticky stream of goo. The appearance of sort of a worm or a slug type thing. Sorry Dave. But with 11 to 13 small sets of feet. Feet that have been walking this earth for quite some time. They were here before humans arrived 1,200 years ago. In fact, they were here before humans arrived at all 300,000 years ago. They walked before mammals 200 million years ago before dinosaurs evolved, 250 million years ago. In fact, Peripetus existed in a form very similar to today, some 510 million years ago. They are some of the oldest creatures on Earth, living right here in the city.
4: Peripetus, they're so different to any other animal on the planet that they're they're a group of animals all by themselves. They're just not like anything else. Uh, it's impossible to say how many different animal species that we have uh, on planet earth and but it's projected that there might be between 2 and 50 million species now it's generally accepted that all those species can be grouped into five main groups that's they're called phyla or each group is a phylum so that's a one group of animals and all of those animals maybe sort of that many million can be grouped into that it's only 200 named species of perimeters. Those 200 species have got one of those phyla all to themselves. It's all theirs. Nothing else is in it. I mean, pretty greedy little buggers, but that's the way it is. There are other names for these animals. Um, they're also called velvet worms. And they're also called walking worms. And if you ever read any articles in the ODT, Target Ag Times, they call them killer worms. <laughs> Now, I don't really like any name. Yes, they are killers. You're going to see them in action. They have got velvety skin and they do walk. But it's a bit of a misnomer because they're not worms. It's totally different to worms. So I just don't like any name with worms in it. And all the people that I know in the scientific community, they prefer Onychophora. I just love Onychophora. It's a lovely word. Um, I mean, nothing against worms, mind you. I'm not being wormist or anything like that. I mean, worms are okay, it's just that these guys aren't worms. I mean, there's a few new names coming up here, but uh, there's some lovely names associated with Peripetus, and we shouldn't be afraid of a few new words. And that's the scientific name. That's my favourite name for them. It comes from the Greek language, and it means claw-bearer. And that's in reference to the tiny, wee claws they have on the bottom of their feet. And I'm gonna show you some footage later on where you actually see these, they've got these wee retractable claws that come in and out at the ends of their feet for extra grip, extra purchase as they move around the place. And um, it's just, they're just fascinating. Dave held this
0: audience for like an hour
4: talking about a bug,
0: you know, but it's laconic style. He knew how to sell it, claws.
3: Okay, okay, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. The perimeters are, they're cool. They're pretty cool. I, yeah, I'm into that. I mean, you have to respect anything that's 500 million years old and got ninja claws hacking down things. That's pretty cool. What's next?
0: Okay, okay. So we'll leave Dave and his crowd of little peripitous people and move on to,
3: um, plants. Plants? Plants are wildlife. Plants are legit wildlife. But how are plants wildlife? How can you interact with a plant? Right.
0: Off to the Botanic Gardens to meet Taylor. Taylor Hamlin is the student committee member of the Wild Dunene Festival and he gets real excited like, I mean, real excited about plants.
1: Everyone knows about the escapades of animals. We all know that, you know, marker sharks are the fastest swimmers in the ocean and how amazing, you know, giant elephants are. But really, plants are just. On another level, the largest tree, for example, a sequoia, is you know several hundred times larger than a, than a blue whale, and just the idea is that plants are so amazing at the things they can do because they're not always restricted by the same rules that animals are. Um, and I think, yeah, generally speaking, there's a huge underappreciation for them. There's so many amazing parts around us every day, uh, things that we walk past all the time. From trees that are several hundred years old to uh, the amount of times that you people walk past edible berries that are both native and introduced species, garden species, and, and trees that are from here, um, is a lot. So people people really should get interested in these things to, for their own benefit. Certain things like all around the city, we have a really high population of, of mistletoe. Actually, so if you if you're ever out with with the misses, make sure you stop under that. Um, Mistletoe is a is a parasitic plant so it doesn't have any roots itself, it embeds itself into a tree and sucks out all the sugars and water it needs from that tree and then grows in it. And in Dunedin actually, they have a funny habit of growing in species, non-native species. So outside the museum, there's a few growing in those trees. Uh, they like to grow in, it seems, a lot of the flowering cherries around the city. Um, those sorts of things are really cool. Uh, if you go a little bit further out, not much further out, up the top of Swampy Summit for example, there's heaps of carnivorous plants. For me, carnivorous plants are something that really gets me going. I actually, um, my whole master's project is on a carnivorous plant. But we have uh, at least two species of carnivorous plants up there, two species of Drosera, which are the sun dews. Awesome, man. What kind of response? plants, what do they eat? Uh, so they'll pretty much eat any invertebrate that falls in them. Uh, so with sun juice, they're sticky like flypaper, so anything that comes past them will stick to them. Uh, they'll curl that up and dissolve it. Uh, bigger um, kind of response plants, though, things like uh, the Nepenthes, which are the pitcher plants, Um, if a mouse falls in them, they'll dissolve that and eat it. No way! Sick! That's awesome, man. And so, so this stuff,
0: that's obviously pretty cool that this stuff is existing within Dunedin city limit, I mean Drossera for me, I associate with being a an alpine plant that you get in the backcountry way up in the hills and it's it's quite cool to think that it's up Swampy Summit.
1: Yeah we have um, some really cool almost alpine environments really really close to the city. Uh, if you go up the top of Mount Cargill, Swampy Summit, uh, up the top of Flagstaff, all those places uh actually act much higher up than they are as far as pine communities go. So there's things up the top of uh, uh, swampy Summit as well, things like the the native cedar, which is a really, really cool species, Libra cedrus, Um, and its wood is so uh, resistant to rotting that when the tree dies, it'll just stand there for a few hundred years by itself, dead. A few hundred years? Yeah, it's completely possible. And because of that, uh, there are huge communities of especially adapted plants and animals that just live in the rotting stands of of Libra Cedrus.
3: Kissing under the parasitic mistletoe. How romantic. And plants that you can eat, that would be nice. It'd be nice to know the things that you could eat but like I didn't realize there were plants that could dissolve mice. That's crazy. Yeah like Taylor's got this knack for
0: not just getting excited and frothy about plants, but how to get others kind of into it as well. Next up, I talk to two people whose job it is to get you excited about nature, professional nature frothers. Tahu Mackenzie is an education officer at Otakonui Eco Sanctuary.
5: I personally think that... We're all most at home outside in nature and it is our home and for five million years as a species we've been evolving being outside and so the most that I want to do with my life and my time and energy is encouraging everyone, whatever shape, size, age, etc., to just get outside and just reconnect and just love it and feel at home again. And, you know, more and more there's all these studies saying, oh, your cortisol level lowers and your heart rate lowers and, you know, your brain waves change. And so it's all being scientifically quantified a lot more now about the healing power of nature connection. But that's my big thing. And I also personally feel that the best thing we can do with our time and energy is allow our inner nurturer to come out and just love the world around us and care for it. And that's like the best feeling ever, I personally feel. And I see it in all ages of people, just being outside and having a a connection with some kind of living creature, encountering some kind of living creature. It could be a tree. It could be a stone. It could be a caterpillar. It could be a peripetus. It could be a chance thing, it could be an engineered thing that someone's talking to them about. But when that moment happens for them and they reconnect, they see what they're capable of, they see they can care and they can really have a lot of meaning in their life in a new way for who they are and what they can do that maybe wasn't there before. So I think little beautiful creatures like the Peripetus are great little microcosms for the whole of our world and the champions of them, like Dave Randall, who found them in his backyard and really wanted everyone to care about them to the point of like kicking up a massive stink with Transport New Zealand and the DCC and Department of Conservation and didn't stop fighting until things changed and they were saved, so inspiring. And we don't all have to go to those lengths, but even if we dedicate part of our day, part of our week, part of our month, part of our year, to caring and doing something for the environment and feeling that connection all the better all the better for our world awesome and how
0: how do we help ourselves care
5: well i think it's wonderful if you have a backyard if you don't have a backyard finding a nature area that's close to you and going for a walk walking around outside just being outside and finding that space and for me, I grew up in um, Broad Bay till I was 7, then I went to LA, South Central, then I went to School and I settled in London and lived there till I was 18, so it was like very big culture shock for me, and so I had to find these little corners that were still wild and were still natural, and they might have had like shopping trolleys and iceberg lettuce bags everywhere, but nature was growing back through them. And that's where I felt at home. That's where I wanted to hang out. So if we can find these little nature possies, even if it's just like a bench with a tree next to it, feeling that life force and feeling that connection is a great thing, a great beginning.
0: And we hear from Nicola Torkey herself, the threatened species ambassador at DOC. We say, well, we'd like to love the little things. But how?
2: The best thing that, that I can do, or that anyone can do really, is to encourage other people to take a closer look. And you know, and, and I like to start with this, this sort of rhetoric or the premise that all and it is really boring, and all the birds are brown, and they only come out at night, and none of them fly, and blah, blah, blah. And um, then, you know, if you took a closer look at a, even a tui, for example, that, that might, you might think is just a black bird. You see it's got iridescent blue and purple, amazing peacock feathers. And, and to me, the, the, the things that really spin my wheels are the quirky things. You know, so the fact that a gecko female hangs upside down from a branch and gives birth to twins is a little bit quirky. Um, And then things that are funny. So anything that's funny about our native wildlife, I like to tell that story because then once people find something funny, they're in, you know?
0: Yeah, so poo. Poo. Sex.
2: Yeah. Yeah, anything that's disgusting, people love things that are gross, uh, and people love things that are a little bit, you know, when we talk about animal business time, you know, (laughs) the nature of sex with nature. um, For the nature, not sex with nature, you know where I'm going with that. So, um, yeah, anything like that, people love it, right? So if you say, um, I don't know that Uh, hee hee are the only bird in the world that mate face to face then instantly people are kind of interested in that like why, why do that and as it happens it's not particularly pleasant it's a little bit violent and it's not a a sort of romantic evening for the hee hee but then you can tell them all sorts of other things about them
0: But Nicola's adamant that we shouldn't let the, the cute or the quirky or the funny get in the way of actually saying something
2: Um, I I feel like New Zealand conservationists um, have got it wrong in the way that we tell stories. And so we particularly tell stories about Kiwi being released, for example. So what? And then what happened? What's interesting about that? And so I, I think the key to telling any story, but particularly about our native wildlife, is that you want to create a sense of there's something at stake here. So it's not all sunshine and lollipops. And we do, I think, a little bit too much of the sunshine and lollipops. You know, oh, look, a cuckoo So, and why? Um, so it's not all sunshine and lollipops out there, team. Uh, however, you also don't want to bum them out because then it becomes like climate change and everybody just feels depressed and helpless and won't get out of bed. And so it's that, that walking that tightrope between there's something going on that's not good but giving them a sense of hope that actually but with our powers combined we can turn this around. And so that sort of navigating the line between urgency and hope is where I try to sit most of the time with my role. But if I find out something funny about Poo, that's definitely going in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I ask Taylor why he treats his friends to endless plant
1: chat. I think it makes your life better if you're out walking around and you see plants and You know what they are it really changes your life it makes the world 3d in a way you stop viewing it as a bunch of green and start viewing everything as as individual organisms and what they do and how they interact with each other and it makes everything a a lot better i think uh you view the world in a different way and how do you get
0: people to see that 3d world how do you get people to see your world if you like of these plants
1: uh well quite frankly you have to make it cool uh (laughs) <laughs> people love uh, kiwi and they love pandas uh, because they're fluffy and um, you can imagine cuddling those things. It's very hard to imagine cuddling a, a, you know, a tussock species or, I mean, some of New Zealand's plants would be really unfortunate to cuddle things like asophilas, which are, which are really, really, really spiny plants. Uh, so you have to make it interesting to them. So things like carnivorous plants, where you can tell them that they eat things, people get excited about that because it kind of makes plants a little bit more alive. You have to kind of give them human personalities.
0: As someone is next walking through through town, as they're wandering around the city, what are some things they can do to see your 3D world of plants and sort of to help themselves kind of just engage with that city around them and that micro fauna or lesser attractive fauna in a, in a different way?
1: The first thing is to go a bit slower. And stop and smell the roses to be cliche, but uh, look at the differences, stop and, uh, you know, this not everyone's going to agree with me here, but rip, plant, rip leaves off plants, crush them up, have a sniff, see what they smell like. Uh, I wouldn't recommend just going around and grabbing random leaves and tasting them because that could go wrong eventually. Um, but if you know which leaves to look out for, definitely taste the tasty ones, smell the smelly ones, look up close, see the different textures of the leaves, and yeah just get low to the ground and up close to things because uh something like a rimu looks very unattractive from a distance but if you get really close to that tree and see the patterns in the bark um it's a a really gorgeous tree and it's the same with the leaves of something like putaputu which is uh, a marble leaf you know if you get right up close to that you'll see the beauty of the foliage and that can really help with you start to see differences in what plants are there and start to make those connections. Ah, I
0: love this idea of this 3D world, like this concept that if if people know a little bit about the plants and animals around them, it sort of transforms that space for them, like they notice that thing flowering or that that special smell as they walk past and they they know do the ones on the south side of the street aren't flowering? Were they flowering at this time last year and they sort of it changes that monodimensional walk to work into this kind of three-dimensional interaction like they're engaged in this landscape. They become part of that environment and organism moving through that habitat rather than just sort of a passenger.
3: Okay, so these pros know how to get people hooked. They've got their awesome, cool, quirky facts about plants and wetter and... I I like this idea, too, of really opening your eyes, slowing down, getting, you know, right, stuck into nature and the sensory aspect of the sight and the touch and the smell. But it's very easy to say, yes, we should love all of these little things. We should love them all equally. But you know the first thing anyone will ask, Jamie? You know that first question. Why? Why should I care about the plants and the peripetus and the insects? Why?
1: There's, there's two good reasons uh, we should care. The first is the most obvious one, and that uh, if you like tui and you like bellbird, then you like plants, because, you know, those those birds are feeding directly off the flowers of all our native trees. If you like keteru, you like plants, because those that bird's feeding off all the berries at the end of the trees. If you like uh your garden not being a pile of giant leaves you like invertebrates and those invertebrates like uh needs native plants for parts of their life cycles so the whole world is connected in such a complex way that if you like the way it is now we really have to protect these species so that it keeps being a great place to live (laughs) the other reason is uh if we don't stop um the destruction of Biodiversity, especially for those little cool plants that live here, um, we might not learn about how they do their amazing things. So, in places like uh, the Canterbury Range shadows, for example, a lot of species are being lost there due to irrigation to form new lands And the reason that's important is those species have been living in an area which is so dry they shouldn't be there. Really, plants don't really like to be in very dry places, but these plants are surviving there really well. If we can study these plants, learn a lot more about them, maybe that we can apply those aspects to producing drought-tolerant crops, for example, which is something that people do care about, even if they don't care about some particularly interesting little uh, little flower way up in the Canterbury Rain Shadows.
2: You know, New Zealand is this incredible collection of islands that bust off from Gondwanaland 80 million years ago. And then since then, all our wildlife has been evolving here in isolation and is like nothing else on Earth. So, you know, uh, I think it was Jared Diamond described New Zealand wildlife as the closest you could get to studying life on another planet. Um, So... To me, that, that creates a sort of sense of duty or responsibility of kaitiakitanga to hang on to these things that belong here and only belong here. Because once they're gone, they're gone forever. Um, but also, what if, so, you know, so what maybe if we lose this particular species of bug? But what if that species of bug was the only bug that, I don't know, cleaned up poo? Or, you know, like they? I think they've predicted that, you know, if flies went extinct... Um, that within within a few years, you know, the world would just be covered in poo. So there are functions and services that the little things do for us that we probably haven't even begun to grasp yet. So it behooves us to look after them and not lose them.
0: And I put this to Dave and Tahu as well.
4: I know that basically many people... Uh, live on a very selfish plane. I mean, that's how humans work. It's all about them and so on and so forth, and they don't give a monkeys. And if if another species goes extinct next week or whatever, well, what the hell? They don't care, as long as they, you know. Um, But I think our lives are just a lot richer with having this stuff around and having these animals around. Um, You know, if we just lived in, in concrete towers and all the lawns were just, you know, grass was just... Green concrete, and they, you know, I mean, yes, we can survive, but I mean, do you is it healthy? I wouldn't think so. Well,
0: how is my life possibly going to be any better with a peripetus it, than it's not?
5: Mm. Well, we wouldn't be here without all these other ancestors. The peripetus is one of our most ancient ancestors that came out of the sea first 590 million years ago. So, who we are and how we understand ourselves is not possible without the connection to all those other lives. And I personally feel we don't reach ourselves, we don't reach our heart, we don't reach our truth and our purpose unless our life is about recognising the contribution of those other lives and making this place ready for all those new lives that are waiting to come in. So when those new lives come in and they're born, this place is really cool for them like it is for us. So it's part of gratitude and it's part of purpose and I think that's what we have to do and it makes us happy.
3: Yeah, they're all pretty solid reasons why we should care. Okay, so you love the little thing. You love Peripetus. Yeah. And plants. Yes, even plants.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but maybe you're kind of a bit of an easy sell, really.
3: Mm, uh, Yeah, I guess I I am a fan of nature already, and our listeners probably are too.
0: Yeah, they sat through six episodes.
3: (laughs) So... (laughs) This, I mean, the biggest challenge that faces conservation and wild things is getting more people to care, to care enough to, you know, take action, to get involved, to get that majority going.
0: Yeah. So this is the multiplier. These are things you can do to multiply your effect to get more people to care. This podcast is kind of preaching to the converted a little bit and they're all going to be nature nerds. So (laughs) what are ways that they can do, what are things that these people who are listening can do to go forth and multiply? Uh,
2: So I would say if if you want to indoctrinate your friends, tell them the funny and the quirky and then... Get them to find funny and quirky facts. Um, So, you know, learning that a female wetter, that thing that pokes out the back of her is not a sting, it's an ovipositor, which is basically a hydroslide for eggs and then it can detect humidity and temperature and all sorts of things. I've become a bit of a bore at dinner parties. Um, (laughs) But part of it is because... um, I can't help but be a nature nerd, so it wouldn't matter if I worked in a bank, I would still be the person who, you know, spun out because I saw a praying mantis eat a fly outside my bedroom window, which does happen, Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess my job combines my two favourite things, right, so it combines New Zealand nature, which clearly I love, and talking, So talking about New Zealand native nature combines my two favourite passions.
1: I get really excited about plants and that's fine, but not everyone does. And and that's fine too. People get excited about other things. I'm glad other people are excited about uh, being an accountant because, you know, (laughs) I might need one of those one day, but I don't really want to be an accountant. So it's really important that people have their own interests, but uh, some of these interests are so important that we need to get people On board and to do that we kind of have to get creative about marketing plants as as the amazing things they are and not just saving the screen thing
0: we've got all these people listening to the the podcast who are kind of already into nature a bit what can they do to share that that kind of beautiful thing that you're describing? What can they do to share that and help their, their buddies and their family and their mum and, and other people, sort of their workmates? How do, they, how do we drag other people into this beautiful thing?
5: I think people love hands-on stuff, as much hands-on stuff as you can do. So if you want to do something, learn how to do it hands-on and then show other people, even if it's like making a poo bomb out of clay and seeds, you know? I think the hands-on connection is so good for people. And skills, learning new skills. So if you can learn a skill, teach it to other people. Just go on about it and share your happiness. That is wonderful.
3: So, dear listeners, go forth. Find the
0: 500 million-year-old bugs in your garden and, and speak on their behalf.
3: Kiss under the parasitic mistletoe. Sniff the smelly plants. Go and interact with this amazingly wild city of ours.
0: Find the cool facts and, and and tell your friends. Tell the quirky and the wonderful and the dirty.
3: Go forth and multiply. <laughs>
0: this is the final episode of this the wild Dunedin podcast thank you so much for listening you know another great way to spread the word about nature is i don't know like a sharing the a podcast on your social media feed maybe uh rating and reviewing the podcast great way to share the word about nature um flick us a message if you like at facebook.com slash wild to podcast any comments suggestions random thoughts are all very welcome
3: As ever, thank you to the supporters of this podcast. So that's the Otago Museum and the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature, as well as the wonderful people at ORFM Dunedin, who've helped us so much with producing this podcast.
0: A massive thank you as well to our guests on this episode. Dave Randall, all-round Peripetus legend. Taylor Hammond of University of Otago in the Wild Neen Committee. Tahu McKenzie from Otakonui Eco Sanctuary. And Nicola Torki from Department of Conservation. A big thanks also to Molly Devine and Paul Corbett who produced the music and intro bed for these podcasts.
3: And thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you've enjoyed listening as much as we have enjoyed making the podcast. This six-episode series has been produced, edited, and fact-checked, and recorded, and written, and sweated over by me, Claire Cunningham, Science Communicator at the Otago Museum.
0: And me, Jamie McCauley, Science Communicator and Conservationist. Ka kite, and see you next time.